Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 8. Remember, Ecclesiastes means the preacher. We determined back in uh, our introduction to this book that the preacher was none other than King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived and one of the most prosperous kings in Israel's history. It's going to be important as we go into this chapter here. Um, But just to give a quick recap, last week in chapter uh, 7, we uh, looked at some wisdom that is applicable to today. In fact, actually, all of it's been applicable today, but, but highlighted the uh, wisdom for the present uh, given to us last week. Solomon was sort of just looking at different aspects of things that, that are, are better ways of living than others because he had ended chapter, uh, chapter 6 with this idea of who knows what's good for man in life. And we determine, well, ultimately, God does. God knows what's best for us, but because of wisdom, um, and because of discernment, we can come to a conviction about an understanding of, of there, are, there are better ways of living than others, right? We understand like there's better ways of doing things. And he just kind of gave us a list of things that are better than reputation. Your, your reputation is better than sort of the outward you put on, right? Because it reflects inner character. He talked about your reputation being better. Funerals being better than going to house of feasting and parties because at a funeral, man, or it says the living contemplates eternity, right? You think about your death, you think about your life, you think about mortality, those things. That's why funerals are better. He talked about correction or receiving a rebuke being better than just listening to the flattering speech of fools. He talked about the end of a thing being better than the beginning of a thing, particularly when you're going through a difficult time because it's the, it's, it's the product, it's the end product that we're looking for. Patience being a good example of that because uh, going through tribulations and trials, patience is what we're looking for in the end. He talked about when uh, wisdom is good in life. It's good when we see it uh, paired up and coupled with things like riches because a wise man not only has um, the wisdom to do good things, he's got the resources to do those things as well. We saw wisdom being um, good when it considers God's work in this world, his providential work, and also when it considers the nature of righteousness. Because we're righteous doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be free from calamity and trouble and trials in this this world. Wisdom's good going into that understanding of of righteousness, and so it, it conducts us to proper conclusions. And I wanted to remind us about some of those conclusions that he talked about. One, he said last week that perfect wisdom is unattainable. None of you will ever get perfect wisdom. As wise as Solomon was, he wasn't perfect in his wisdom. And wisdom does reveal truth about things, such as the fear of God can keep you from a path of sin. The fear of God can keep you on the right uh, path. And we'll look at that actually a little bit next week. But also, he talked about wisdom itself being exceedingly rare, that few men actually uh, have it. In fact, that's really what he concluded with last week in chapter 7, that it was an exceedingly rare thing. And then he said this in verse 29, Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The reason, because, the reason wisdom is so scarce among men is not because God is stingy with handing out wisdom. It's because he made the man upright, but we sought out many schemes. And so chapter 8 begins with this question. In fact, just look at it in verse 1. Who is like a wise man? Who is like a wise man? If there's such rarity, if it's such a rare thing to see wisdom, then how do we know when we, we see someone who's wise? Who, who is like a wise man? How do you know a wise person when you find them? People act wise. Maybe they have worldly wisdom, but how do we know if we've really seen a wise person? Notice what he says here. Who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? That word interpretation, pesher, pesher, is a Hebrew word that's only used here in the Old Testament. That's really important to know. It's only used here. You don't find it anywhere else in the Old Testament except for the Aramaic equivalent. Remember, some of the Old Testament is written in Aramaic, predominantly in the book of Daniel. That word in the book of Daniel 31 times is used as interpretation or, or translated as interpretation. It means, it refers to a, a, a hidden meaning behind something. So Solomon is saying, who's like a wise man? I'll tell you who's like a wise man. He's one who can interpret hidden meanings to things. And what thing though? What thing? Well, the word thing is devar, devar, and it actually means a word, 
a saying, an utterance. He is talking about um, a proverb. Who knows the interpretation of some kind of an utterance of a saying? And then he gives us one such example. Look what he says. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. Hmm, interesting. What's the interpretation of that? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is is changed. A shining face in the Old Testament generally speaks of of favor. Probably one of the most well-known ones is is Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 25. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord will make his face shine to shine upon you. That has the idea of God's favor being upon you. The wise man, what Solomon is saying is this, the wise man will be visibly seen because he's visibly gracious in his demeanor. It's in his countenance. That's why I've titled this the countenance of the wise. His gentleness is seen in his face. In fact, notice the sternness of his face is changed. And and, and the idea is this, is that in our countenance here, because of the things of the world and how we act and uh, how we interpret the things that are taking place, this doesn't wear the burden of all that. There, there's something else here. Our countenance must look uh, slightly different. And let me give you an example, the negative version of the countenance in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 to 50. The Lord will bring a nation against you, Israel, from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance. Fierce countenance, like the way they look. They look fierce just in their face and their eyes, right? But a man's countenance who is godly is gentle in his, in his demeanor. Why does a gracious, gentle countenance, why, why is that a hallmark of the wise? Well, first of all, I think it exhibits the joy of the Lord, doesn't it? It exhibits the joy of the Lord. Great example is, is um, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. Famous, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We know that part. What does verse 5 say? Let your gentleness be known to all men. We rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in Him always. But what's our countenance like? It's gentle because that's the wise person. Can we honestly say we rejoice in the Lord always? No, we would say, except when, and then we'd fill in the blank, right? Except when I argue with my husband, except when I had a flat tire, except when I'm late to work. I mean, we could just fill in all kinds of things, right? Um, Rejoice in the Lord always, and your gentleness will be known to all men. That's the idea there. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says this, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy to our lord do not sorrow for the joy of the lord is your strength essentially saying what solomon has said before right eat drink be merry send food to people who don't have it you know why don't sorrow you you have strength because the joy of the lord is your strength so the demeanor that we should have a wise person should have is one of joy and that also exhibits not just our joy of the Lord, but that we're not overly manipulated and burdened by, by all the world affairs. We, we can come in any day, right, and talk about all the terrible news we've seen in the papers and on this, and, like, and just kind of have this horrible countenance upon us. And then we walk around all week like this, and people come up to us, and we have conversations with them, and we want to tell them that they can have a loving, lasting relationship with the Lord who loves them. With a face like this, the Lord loves you, but I'm miserable because this world stinks. No, we don't let that burden us. We say, no, but the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? This is the idea here. How do we know a wise person? Remember James chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. So that's the idea there. So a gracious, a gentle countenance is the countenance of a believer, isn't it? I mean, I just showed you verses from Scripture. That's the idea here. So how is it useful in this life? That's what Solomon is going to answer in this chapter. Originally, I I prepared the whole chapter. We're going to just do the first nine verses uh, today. So it's the countenance of the wise part one today. So let's read through it. Chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like a wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the sternness of his face is changed. I say, 
keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter, there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. For he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All of this I have seen and applied in my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity to, to open its pages and to hear from you. And I do pray that you prepare our hearts for the truth that is in here, so applicable, so important for today. And I just pray that we would be ready to receive what you want us to receive today and to apply it to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're just going to look at one, one point today, and next week we'll look at point uh, two. There's too much to get through in one a day. And the idea here is, is how to live well before the king. How to live well before the king. The idea is living well before just those that are in authority over us today. And let's just look at verse 1 again. Um, who is like a wise man who knows the interpretation of a thing and makes wisdom uh, his countenance, uh, sorry, and man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. I set this all up to say that the wise man has a certain countenance, a behavior, a demeanor when he addresses and lives, uh, addresses issues and lives his life before whom? Well, before the king. Look at verse two. I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Now, it's interesting. We don't often see this by Solomon, but did you notice what he said here in this passage? I say. Solomon, who is a king, says, I say, um, you should keep the king's commandment. Now, you might be going, well, of course Solomon would say that. Like, what king wouldn't, right? I'm the king. Uh, good advice for you. you. You should obey the king. You should keep the king's commandment. Well, yeah, of course he would say that. But this is where it, this is where it starts. This is the idea. How do we live well in this life? How do we live well in this life? The answer is this. Ultimately, it comes to obedience. We want to live well before God. What would you say is, is a primary requisite for that, prerequisite? Obedience, right? He says, you will love me if you obey my commands, right? We want to love our, our heavenly king, we obey him. How do we love and honor our earthly ones? Well, Solomon says, well, it begins in the same place, by your obedience. You obey them. Look what he says, for the sake of your oath to God. For the sake of your oath to God. Now, you might be thinking, that's strange. Why does he bring up an oath? I didn't make an oath uh, to God regarding this. Now, to be fair, the, the idea of this oath is more prominent in the Old Testament. And I just want to give you some examples because it helps you understand what, what he's talking about here because Solomon's writing in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 22, we have an example of this and it relates to property. And look at this in chapter 22, verses 10 to 11. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. The idea is this, is just you're going to go away or you're going you're to travel, and so you, you give this pet, this animal to your neighbor, and when you come back, the neighbor tells you, oh, you know what? It died inexplicably, or it ran away. Now, you might think two things. You might be thinking, oh, that, that's, I can't believe that, right? Or you might think, did he really? Like, you might start asking neighbors, did he have a feast when I was away? Yeah, was it lamb? <laughs> right? You, you might start wondering what your neighbor did with your property. And the idea here is that there would be an oath between both of you, an oath of innocence, that when the neighbor would come to you and say, listen, he died. <laughs> I don't know what happened. He was diseased, something, or he was eaten by a wolf, or he, he ran away. I don't know where he, he went. There's an oath of innocence. It's between you both, but also to who? An oath of the Lord. 
You making that, that oath to someone else is also seen by the Lord, and he is going to hold that person accountable. And what you're doing as a neighbor, the one who lost the animal, you're saying, okay, Lord, you've heard the oath. I trust you. Because who does actually see it? He says, no one's seeing it. No one's seeing the animal. Who has actually seen the animal? Well, God has. Ultimately, God knows exactly what happened to that animal, and it might be right inside the belly of that, that person. He might have eaten it, right? That's the idea. So ultimately, I trust the Lord, right? He, he is the one. And so this oath between us is also an oath between us and the Lord. Another example relating to promises, and you might remember this in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 7. This is the king, King David. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Um, there was a covenant between uh, Jonathan and David. It's made back in 1 Samuel chapter 20 because Jonathan, Jonathan's father Saul was trying to kill David. Jonathan knew David would be the rightful king and David would, he would, he would wipe out the enemy, right? And so what, what Jonathan says is, you know, you, you're going you're gonna to kill the household. I understand that, but would, would you spare mine? Spare mine. So this is Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. And so a covenant is made. He says, don't kill my, my family. And, and David holds that up. He doesn't, he doesn't kill uh, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. He, he spares him. But notice what it said. It says, because of the Lord's oath. This is a covenant back in 1 Samuel between the two of them. But here, it's referenced as the Lord's oath. The Lord saw that promise, and he is going to hold David accountable if he fulfilled it or if he didn't. One more example here in Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 18 and 19, you have Zedekiah, who is a a vassal servant of King Nebuchadnezzar because King Nebuchadnezzar uh, from Babylon had come in and conquered. And so uh, Zedekiah is sort of a, a vassal servant. He's got to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. He's got to be obedient to him. And so he made an oath to Nebuchadnezzar that he would be um, his, his vassal, his servant. But he breaks that oath. He breaks that oath. Um, and instead he goes to seek help from Egypt. Now here's what God says about him breaking that oath, okay? Ezekiel 17, 18, since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. Interesting. He made that covenant with Nebuchadnezzar, but what does God say? No, it was my oath. He said it to me. He broke my covenant and I'm gonna hold him accountable for that. Now, how does this apply today? Do we have some kind of equivalent today? Let me just get a show of hands. How many British citizens in the room? A British citizen. Okay, good. The majority of you. I was hoping to see that. I'd be a little shocked. If you didn't put your hands up, right? You're British citizens. Now, whether you know this or not, or whether you like it or not, you have all made an oath. You've made an oath to this country. Because me, if I want to become a British citizen, I have to attend a ceremony after paying an exorbitant amount of money. And I have to make the following statement. I, Kevin Berthium, swear by Almighty God that on becoming a British citizen, I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, her heirs and successors according to law. I give my loyalty to the United Kingdom and respect its rights and freedoms. I will uphold its democratic values I will observe its laws faithfully and fulfill my duties and obligations as a British citizen. An oath to who? Almighty God. Now today, there is an affirmation, if you prefer, to not swear by Almighty God. So here's my question today, is if let's just assume you prefer to take this oath, but you leave out that phrase, I swear by Almighty God. Now let me ask you this, is this oath still before Almighty God? You bet. It doesn't matter if you say it or if you don't, because you've made an oath. It is assumed the oath is between you and the country, and it is seen by God. Where does this all go? Romans 13. Here's the idea. Verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Pretty clear verse, isn't it? Okay, there are authorities on this earth, to be sure. 
But all of those authority exist and are appointed by God. And if you resist the authority appointed by God, you're resisting who? God. Does that make sense? Great example is this. Do you remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate? We just covered this in, in John. And Pilate is questioning Jesus as he says, don't you know that I have power to crucify you and power to set you free? What does Jesus say? Well, you would not really have any power if it weren't given to you from above. Now, he's not being disrespectful. He's just correcting him. He's like, well, you do have power, but it was given to you by someone else, someone higher than you, just to make sure we're clear on that, all right? That is the idea. Um, Jesus didn't rebel. He accepted his fate at the hands of Pilate. He just verbally clarified where Pilate was coming from. Oh, you do have power, um, and you're free to exercise that power. I just want you to know it was given to you from above, who is actually his father in heaven. Think about that. So the idea is this, that God sovereignly has placed all authorities where they are and how they are operating for his purposes. Now, sometimes we look at authorities and kings and rulers and we go, what could, what possible good outcome could there be with this guy, right? You just don't know. We have to trust the Lord uh, with that. But all of it is in the Lord's hands. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Now, you might, you might think, well, that's, that can't really be true. Well, let me tell you, Isaiah chapter 45 says otherwise. If you want to turn there real quick, Isaiah chapter 45 is, is an amazing passage. I do uh, tell you, I, I would I encourage you to go read it. Read the whole thing on your own. But Isaiah chapter 45 is talking about King Cyrus. King Cyrus is a pagan king, a Persian king. Okay, he's talking about King Cyrus being an instrument that he has chosen to use for his purposes, and King Cyrus can do nothing about it. Now, Cyrus has no idea about that, but this is from God's perspective. Okay? Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and lose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I've even called you by your name. I've named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. Interesting. God uses Cyrus as his instrument. He says, I've taken you by the hand and you're just, you're just following me. You're just doing exactly what I, I want you to do. So we have to understand that aspect of authorities, that God is in control. He's appointed those things, um, those, those rulers where they are. There's another aspect of that, and that's how do we live and how do we respond to that? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Verse 2, For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. You notice that? So we pray for all authorities. Why? So that we'll lead quiet, peaceable, godly, reverent Lives. Does that sound like the demeanor, the countenance of the wise here in chapter 8? It does. That's the idea. So our living before kings of this earth must begin with an understanding of where they get their authority from, okay? Why do I obey the king? Because God has placed him there, and he's given him his authority, and so I'm called to obey him. In fact, it goes on in verse 3 to, to, to elaborate on that. Look at verse 3. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Don't be hasty to go from the presence of the king. This has the idea of dissatisfaction, disloyalty. Many times we might be under the rule or power or authority of someone. We're just not satisfied with how they're doing things. He says, don't be hasty. Don't be hasty to run from their presence. Don't be hasty in, in that disloyalty because that's a big thing. It's a big deal to be disloyal. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, right? That has the idea of rebelliousness. I'm going to stand uh, for, for this thing. Don't be rebellious. In Proverbs 30, 32, 
It says, if you've been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you've desired evil, put your hand on your mouth. I think in a way, many times, that idea of rebellion is exalting ourselves above the authority of the king. When God has given them that authority, but not has give, he's not given you the authority to rebel. He, he hasn't. He's called us instead to uh, uh, obey. And why? For he does whatever pleases him. The king has great authority given to him by God. And therefore, uh, since the king, with his God-ordained power, can do what he wants, we shouldn't hastily oppose him. We need wisdom, then, on how to act to, uh, and react to a foolish command, something that we don't agree with, right? We don't always need to express our feelings on an issue. And our main responsibility is to obey the king, maintain loyalty to him, just as we do to, to God. Here's a great example from the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all bring up this scenario of the Pharisees and the Herodians teaming up, right, to accuse Jesus of sedition, disloyalty, to Caesar. And do you remember the question they asked him? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? I think they, they got him in a, in a trap here, right, because he's speaking about a different kingdom. What was Jesus' brilliant answer? Let me see a coin, right? Whose inscription's on the coin? Well, that's Caesar. Well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to, to God the things that are God's, right? What's, what was Jesus saying there? Earthly kings are going to use their God-given power to do what pleases them, to do what they want to do. So he says, so give to Caesar the things that are his. That coin's not mine. Give it to him. But give to God what God wants. Give to Caesar what Caesar wants. Give to God what God wants. Another reason to obey the king here is because of their power, not just because of your oath before God and understanding that you have an obligation to obey, but because they have power. Where the word of a king is, there is power, verse 4 says. And who may say to him, what are you doing? The king has power just in his words alone, doesn't he? The king can just say something and it can be done uh, you know, famously, that cartoon, um, Alice in Wonderland, I know it was a book before it was a cartoon, right? But off with her head, right? They just, she shout, that's all I remember from the movie is she ran around just saying, off with her head, off with her head, because she had authority in her words. She had power in her words. And they go, well, let's go take this guy's head off, right? And that's what they would do because there was power in their words. And interestingly, the power here, this word for power is shilton, and it means mastery, mastery power, mastery. There's mastery in their words, meaning this, that we must submit to the master's words. That's the idea there, mastery. Um, We're going to see that same word being uh, used again in verse 8 in just a minute, but the same idea is applied to God. The same idea is applied to God. In Isaiah 45, you know, I just read that a few minutes ago. I didn't go as far as verse 9, but I'll put it on the screen for you. Verse 9 is this, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands? That's an amazing passage, isn't it? Who's the maker in that passage? God. And and the people are the the clay. And he's making the, the pot. He's making what he wants to make. He says, can the pot go, hey, what are you making? Why are you forming this way, me this way? Paul says the same thing, right? He kind of uses this idea. You as a pot sherd shouldn't be complaining to the maker how you're being made. He says, you can complain to the other pot sherds of the earth. That's fine. But you don't go to the maker and say, hey, what are you doing? Just the same way, we don't go to the king who has power in his words and say, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? God gives that king power. Now, let me just add something. It's not unlimited. It's not omnipotent, right? That's God's power. But he gives the earthly rulers power, and we have got to respect it. Why do we need to respect it? Well, here's the uh, other reason. Because of of your well-being, first of all, it's good for you. Verse 5, look at verse 5, where, uh, sorry, verse 5, he who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. Obeying the king's command and uh, observing the, the proper decorum having the the proper respect will help one avert harm, won't it? Here's the idea. I think today, if I'm honest, 
most of our young people do not have a respect of authority. There was a time when that was true, but I would say in general, and it's not just here, in the States as well, they don't properly respect authority. In fact, instead, it's, it's more hip and cool to sort of rebel against authority, isn't it? But let me tell you, I mentioned last week that as the families go, so goes society. That is a result of what we've lost in the families. Respect is something I cover in our parenting classes because it's something that's been lost. When you talk about authority, God has given authorities to to different people on the earth. You as a parent, God has given you authority. I've always said it this way. You are God's agents on earth in the life of your kids. You represent God because who is God to your kid? You, you've, got to, you've got to represent that to them. And you do it primarily through three things. Three things we do for our kids, right? We, we protect them. We provide for them. We usually do okay on those things, but we're supposed to prepare them as well. And the preparation part is the part that we largely are failing on because the preparation part is to prepare them to live in this world. And that means I've got to stay consistent in disciplining and correcting and guiding them to understand how important it is to respect authority, and it begins in the home. And if we don't correct them in the home, they don't learn respect in the home, I'm going to tell you, they will learn it, but the costs go up. They don't learn it in the home from the loving, caring parents. They're going to learn it from the friends at school. They don't learn it from the friends in school. They're not going to learn it for the, their, their jobs, their occupations, right? They're going to have some kind of boss over them. They learn it there. They're going to learn it on the streets. They don't learn it in the streets. They're going to learn it in prison, but they will learn respect. And do you want your kids going down that path? No. It starts here. Respect will be learned, and we've got to start in the home. I know I'm standing on a soapbox for a second here, but we just talked about you know, parents being dedicating themselves to, to raise their kids in the, the, the right way. We have a generation of kids who have no respect for authority. Passages like this are just being not even remotely considered, right? We're to obey the king. I don't agree with everything the king says, but God says, that's in my hands. You just obey. He keeps his command. Who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. It's not even just in the obedience. It's the way, uh, the respectful or disrespectful way we act. Remember that countenance of the wise, the demeanor of the wise is gentle, is kind. Remember, those are lost people too. You're not going to win them by having this this rebellious uh, attitude. Now, here's the caveat to all of that, because I know what you're you're all thinking here. Look at the second half of verse five. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. A wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. So here's the balance. Obedience keeps us out of harm's way, but we need to discern time and judgment. If you remember back from chapter three, that great uh, amazing passage of time to live, time to die, time to be born, all those things, all right, the, the, the word season in that was the set appointed time by God. And the word time was this word, eighth, eighth. And that is the actual event, the actual occurrence of being born, uh, you know, dying, those things, okay? There is, under a king's rule, there will be different occasions requiring different courses of, ac- courses of action. And we've got to recognize the proper time and the proper procedure to take for that time. This whole Franklin Graham is a great example, isn't it? Right? We, we, we have lots of options. We could have taken to the streets with, with banners and, and, and flags and, and protests and all of those, those things, and we would have a right to, to do that. We chose to write a respectful letter to say, we are UK citizens. The UK has announced that they're committed to protecting the rights of Christians they have, and, and our rights aren't being protected because we, we're not having the religious freedom, uh, and we're not having freedom of speech, and so we're just asking that you protect, you know, that's a gracious way of sharing those things, and we can do it forcefully, but we can do it with grace, uh, we can do all of those things, it's, it's the right way to handle these things, and it takes um, discernment, doesn't it? Here's a harder one for you parents. 
Remember, periodically we brought to you the whole uh, smacking ban that's been proposed. It finally been passed. We knew the writing was on the wall. That was going to happen. It's been passed. The smacking ban. Now, a lot of you in this room might be going, well, good. You know, we don't do that anyway. It's fine. Whatever. Um, the point is, is this. In, in, in 2022, when that goes into effect, by law, your resources as a parent are going to become limited. And when I read scripture, yes, there are other methods of discipline that you could choose to use. I will tell you they're not here, so that means they're worldly. I'm not saying they're bad, but they're worldly because they're not here. And, and scripture gives us one outcome from the method it gives. And that, met, that outcome, I can promise you. Does that make sense? Because it's in scripture. Scripture says, if you use the rod, you drive, drive the foolishness from the heart of the child. So I know that that will happen because scripture says it. I believe everything scripture says. But if you say, but I'm going to do these things, these things, these things, because maybe those will work, they might. I'm not saying they won't, but it's not a guarantee, right? My point is this. You're going to have to make a hard decision now, parents, in 2022. Do I break the law because I want to see this fruit, or do I, how do I do that? That's going to take discernment, isn't it, right? Time and judgment. Time and judgment. We've got to be careful about that. We've got to use wisdom about that. We've got to seek the Lord about that. How do I, how do I go on with that? And, and to be fair, some of those are, those are biblical principles. I would say when it comes to biblical commands, right? Well, that's when we stop. We go, well, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship the Lord. You can't meet and worship the Lord. We're, we're going to worship the Lord, right? You have people in China. They can't worship the Lord. They, they go to worship the Lord. I, I, I'm, I'm created to glorify God. I'm, that's why I'm a worshiper. I'm created to do that, and I, I, I will continue to do that. Oh, you can't proclaim the gospel. Well, I'm commanded to proclaim the gospel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the, Does that make sense? So we have the clear things that we should do when it comes to biblical principles like in parenting and stuff. That's time. That's discernment. That's judgment. You've got to be wise. What is God telling you to do? What should you do there? There's a great quote I found from an old Scottish Presbyterian, uh, Ralph Wardlaw, who wrote this in 1821. He says this, let us manifest the influence of religious principle in becoming subjection to the government of our country from considerations both of duty and discretion. I love that. We should feel it incumbent upon us to shun all exasperating language, to repress all railing and indecent accusations against those who have the management of public affairs, to engage in no virulent opposition or hasty measures, to continue in our place and station, not to enter upon much less to persist in any turbulent attempts. I like that, turbulent attempts. Nor needlessly to expose ourselves to the jealousy and resentment of government. Not that we must approve in our judgment of every public measure or that we are never to join in temperate and constitutional means of procuring the correction of abuses and the rescinding of injurious decisions, the alteration of what is wrong or the improvement of what is right. But in all, we should be prudent and temperate, influenced by sober principle and genuine patriotic regard to our country, not by presumptuous self-conceit or revolutionary frenzy. There's a great guideline there, that we should be prudent, that we should be temperate, that we, there are times to stand for the things that we should be standing for, um, but, but also we got to be careful how we're doing that. How is that being seen? We must be careful. And notice what he says here at the end of verse 6. Though the misery of man increases greatly. That's interesting. Why is man in great misery? That word misery is ra'ah. Earlier we've seen it de defined as, uh, translated as evil, uh, distress. It's actually the same word used as harmful in verse 5 we just saw. You'll experience nothing harmful. So how will the wise man experience nothing evil, yet we see that evil increases greatly. That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? You'll see nothing evil, nothing harmful will come to you if you obey, but there's great and increasing evil or misery coming to man. Well, how is that? How does that come? The comparison is between the things we can control and the things we cannot. You can control your obedience to the king, right? You can control how respectful you are to authority. You can control those things, in regard to the king's command. You can't control the future. And that's what he goes into in verse 7. 
Verse 7, for he does not know what will happen. You see, the context is immediately different. You don't know what will happen in the future. You have no idea. So who can tell him when it will occur? You have no idea. Why A wise heart knows about time. He knows about judgment, and that influences his thinking and his actions. But nobody knows exactly how and when things will work out, right? You just don't know. We don't know how this whole Franklin Graham thing will work out. We just don't know. And the misery, if you can say it that way, comes with our ignorance concerning the future. Wisdom in that case cannot help us. It cannot help others because we don't know. And to underline the point, Solomon is going to offer the ultimate example of something we don't know. There is an event, there is a time that, that we can anticipate, but we have no idea the how, the where, and the when. That escapes us. What is that event? The event is death. The event is death. And that's his point here in verse 8. No one has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. No one has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Now, this is a different word for power. Earlier, we saw shilton, which meant mastery. This is a different word. It's shalit, shalit, and it means ruler, a ruler. No one rules over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. No one rules over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. It was, it was uh, translated as, as rulers in verse 19 of chapter 7 as well, already in this, in this letter. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than 10 rulers of the city. The point is this. No one can retain the Spirit. We don't rule over our spirits enough to make it stay within this earthly tabernacle, do we? Right? If it's God's appointed time for the Spirit to leave this tabernacle, it's going to leave. I don't care how much I really feel and think I rule it. I ultimately don't. I ultimately have no control over that. I don't rule it to that point. He goes on, and no one has power in the day of death. Now, that is the word power that we saw back in verse 4 that means mastery, she'll tone. That one is that word. So we are not masters. We don't master uh, death. We have no mastery over that day of death. But who is? Jesus is, right? And Jesus actually has conquered death. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told this in verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Um, Jesus has, notice it says he, he will be destroyed. Death will be destroyed. Jesus defeated the one who had the power of death. That's the devil. Hebrews tells us that. Um, but death will not be cast into the lake of fire until after the millennial reign of, of Christ. Okay, you just read Revelation 20 there. That won't happen until after, meaning there will be no more death because the new heavens and new earth will be set up and there won't be, there won't be any more uh, death. But man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says that, right? None of us can stop that day of death coming. Death uh, comes to us all. We don't, we don't master the day of death. In fact, he illustrates this going on. There is no release from that war. Literally no discharge from that war. It's a war you're all in. You're all soldiers in that war and you can't be discharged. There's no dishonorable discharge, right? You're just in the war against death. And I'm just going to tell you now, the bad news is you lose that war in terms of death. In terms of death, you lose it. In fact, Ralph Wardlaw, I read you a quote earlier there. He said this, every man must advance. Every man must advance alone to single combat and every man in succession must fall. We all fall to death. Death wins the war. It comes to us all. But for believers, to live as Christ and to die is gain, right? That's, that's how we view it. We'll die, but to live as Christ, to die is, is gain. There's no release from that war. And notice the final thing he says, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. No man can escape the consequences of his wickedness. That, notice that phrase, those who are given to it. That's one word in the Hebrew. It means owner. Wickedness will not deliver its owner. That's a very interesting phrase. Very interesting phrase. Because the owner is usually the one 
that delivers or releases the other, right? If you owned a slave in the Old Testament, you, you could release the slave. But here it says, the wickedness won't release the owner, which begs the question, who owns wickedness or does wickedness own you, right? This is the idea here in terms of the death idea. And you know people like this, those that mock death, those that mock eternity, those that mock health, who say, yeah, I'm going to hell and I don't care. All my friends will be there and then we're going to have a party, right? You've heard those kind of things. They mock it as if it were a trivial thing. Let me tell you what Isaiah 28 says about, about that. It's, um, it's, a, it's a humbling section of scripture here. God is speaking to rulers, um, rulers in Judah. It's Isaiah chapter 28, verse 14 uh, in Jerusalem who are, who are ruling uh, poorly. So think about the context of our passage today. Sometimes you're gonna have a, a ruler who rules poorly. Uh, uh, and the rulers in Jerusalem were, were doing that. And they were even mocking that death, death wouldn't even take them. Here's what God says about that in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you've said, we've made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, that's death, it will not come to us. For we've made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay on Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you'll be trampled down by it. <laughs> we made a covenant with death. That overflowing scourge, that, that death, it's not going to get us. And God says, uh, no, actually, it's going to. In fact, I'm going to lay a more sure foundation, because what you're building is lies. I'm going to lay a sure foundation, a cornerstone. Who is our cornerstone? That is Jesus, right? I'm going to build something that's built on lies. I'm going to build something on truth. And I'm going to build it on Jesus, the cornerstone of truth. Something that's sure, something that won't be swept away by the flood of lies. You can stay there in that place, but death is coming to you regardless. Your covenant, if you've made it with death, is going to be annulled. The idea is this, that people really do mock the idea of death, mock the idea of hell, mock uh, eternity, but wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. You, you can say all those things. It won't ultimately deliver you from what is to come. All men will, will experience death. No one has power of the Spirit. No one has power in the day of death. And Solomon ends this section with this. His observations, his experiences, which he applied uh, himself, right, as he was on this quest to find meaning, he leads to this conclusion of verse 9. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. King Solomon learned this. He was a ruler uh, in Israel, and his rule gave him both uh, temptation to sin and opportunity to sin. Temptation will come to us all. The problem is, is that when we're in a point of temptation and we also have the opportunity. Temptation coupled with opportunity means fall, okay? I mean, that's, a, that's an equation you just won't win. Temptation, opportunity. The temptation was he loved many foreign women, we're told in 1 Kings 11, right? And his position of power gave him, well, many foreign women, he had 700 wives and princesses. He had 300 concubines. And what happened? They turned his heart away from God. And because he turned his heart away from God, God tore the kingdom out of his hand. He ruled to his own hurt and to the hurt and harm of others because Israel never regained the prominence and prosperity it enjoyed under Solomon. It's never regained that. What is the point here? Why we need to 
be subject to authorities, we need to exercise discretion. We need to use wisdom uh, in dealing with their, their rule. Earthly rulers can abuse their power. It will be to their own harm. And the question is, well, what about those rulers then? What about those kings? What, what happens to them? Well, they answer to a higher king. And so do we. And that's what Solomon's going to look at next week, the second half of this passage. They ultimately answer to the one who gave them to the power to begin with. And so how do we live before that king? We've learned how to live before these kings. How do we live before that one? So come back next week and we'll find out. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. Uh, Such timely, um, practical advice and information, Lord. As we we live under under, um, the rule of, of those, Lord, that may may pass laws and may uh, push things that we just don't agree with, things that uh, aren't biblically uh, uh, true or helpful or obedient, helps us to be obedient to Scripture. Lord, we, we, we need wisdom in this time. But we also must recognize the power given to those who are over us comes from you. And ultimately, Lord, you just call us to, to be reverent, to be respectful, to be obedient Lord, to represent you well, to live in such a way, may our countenance be, Lord, so visible to others that we are at peace with those who rule over us because we know ultimately who rules over them and is you. The power is given to them by you. And so, Lord, we really bow before you ultimately, God. We're thankful that you are a God that is in control. It does um, allow us to fully trust in you. As we read in Psalm chapter two, those nations, they plot, they rage in vain. Ultimately, they're called to fear you as we are as well. So I pray, Lord, that we would just walk away today with um, a better just understanding of how you would like us to live in this day and age. When we read the troubling news and we hear of uh, the disturbing, disturbing facts of what's happening in our uh, nations, Lord, that we would not carry that in our demeanor. But our demeanor instead would show the the joy of the Lord, and the absolute trust that we have in you. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.